How's Work is an unscripted one-time counseling session focused on work. For the purposes of maintaining confidentiality, names, employers, and other identifiable characteristics have been removed. But their voices and their stories are real. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on Home mom? <laughs> no. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Do you want to call each other by your names or do you want to keep that anonymous and say you and she? And... Let's try with you and she. Yes. Um, yeah. Do you have aliases? I had one because I joined new agencies and it's like, okay, now you need to have a new name because you were already in Paris and they know you by your first name and we want to rebrand you. So they called me Fee. It's a nickname not many people use. Okay. Fee. And you? I don't really have any. Don't you want to invent one? I mean, when you model, you are so many other people anyway. Pick one. Yeah, true. <laughs> um, Jane, no. I mean, that would be easy and something that's not too noticeable. Yeah. Jane. Okay. Jane and Fee. They were teenagers, discovered, thrown into a profession that took them way beyond their years. They didn't choose, they were chosen. Once chosen, they had to prove their devotion. And this devotion is right at the center of our conversation as they are talking about wanting to leave the profession. Leaving the field is very, very difficult when you have sacrificed years to making it. So many people come to me to talk about how to leave a partner. <laughs> you are coming, both of you, to talk to me about how to leave a profession. Yes. With whom you have had a tumultuous relationship such a tumultuous relationship <laughs> right since adolescence so this is a long-term relationship mm -hmm. so that's an interesting thing we came to discuss with you how we can leave our modeling careers and why it has been so difficult for us to do so yeah would that summarize it i think so yes for me it would and take the good things and and but not take the bad with us mm -hmm. yeah is leaving Never modeling again, or is leaving changing your relationship to modeling? I think it's a second for me. Yeah. I would like to know how to do the leaving if I want to, because I feel like now I don't. What's the hook for you? I, I don't know. I've been trying to find this out, and I don't... What I've come to think is that it's maybe that I never managed to do the industry on my terms. So I feel like every time I came back with new tools, like a new education or like new ideas, and I was like, okay, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to manage my career. I'm going to talk about where I want to go. And I had all these ideas of how my career would be, but every time I would be going back into the, the mode of a chess piece where I was being put all over the globe, wherever they needed me or wanted me, but it was never, I never felt like an actor in the process or like 
for some reason, having kids is the only way where agents give you the agency to, to manage your agenda, <laughs> which is funny. So this is the legitimate way for a woman to stop being a model is to say, I am now on my way to becoming a mother. Yeah, or to at least say modeling is not my main priority right now. Mm -hmm. I always feel like it has to be all in or nothing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. How about for you? Yeah, I second that. It's interesting. I, I mean, I never thought about that, but for me, it's now that transitioning into motherhood myself, why is it still difficult for me to quit modeling? And it's this fake promise of, The next big job is just around the corner or one more job, one more easy job. You know, how nice would it be if I would be able to work as a model once a month with only all the pros and none of the cons of, you know, having to be in shape, making sure your skin looks good, making sure your hair looks good. And then if a job comes, you know, you always need to be available. And for the agencies, it's like modeling first. How do they indoctrinate you with that there's a thousand other girls who would be clamoring to do this job if you don't really want it more than anything i think definitely what you said so firstly that there's this constant this lurking idea of there's so many women and girls who would want to be in my position or would want to be in your position so how dare you say no to something now Secondly, I also think there's a big culture of, of creating the idea that girls who say no to these things are difficult. And once you're difficult and placed in that box of difficult, they would just won't put you forward to work anymore. I've had it so often that bloggers would say to me, oh, she's just always asking about her schedule. She's always canceling on things. She's so difficult to work with. Mm -hmm. yeah. What I noticed after all of those years of modeling that Knowing that I could set my own boundaries, especially with uh, you, you don't always have a place where you can change privately. I never knew how that influenced me, that it was so difficult for me to feel my own boundaries within that and that it was also okay not to feel okay with it, that I could ask for a changing room or a private area where not everyone on set could see you change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You get a comment of, yeah, let's not be difficult with changing And I'm like, it's my body. And I don't, apparently don't get to have any agency. I'm hearing two things. Um, anything that you ask for that has to do with boundaries or my body still is mine. Just about anything that would say I am not submitted to my industry runs the bias of being considered not committed enough and difficult. Yes. Yeah. Difficult is often a euphemism for that other word that starts with a B. Difficult means you're not obedient. You must not really appreciate the opportunity that is given to you. Other people would just be so appreciative and so thankful You are making demands. Who gives you that right? But when you are a teenager who on the one hand is still in an obedient position and you are also trying to claim your agency as a young model, that becomes very complicated. Also, beauty is, is, is luck. I mean, I can't, I can't change the way my face looks. Well, you can't, but, you know. Mm -hmm. you Tell me about that. It's like the, the thing that I'm building this whole life upon is something that I had nothing to do with. I mean, I do in the way that I control it, that I try to improve on it and keep my weight down and all of that. But the, the raw material of it mm. was just handed down by the heavens and by nature. It's, it's such an interesting dynamic of wanting to have control over something that is uncontrollable. Mm. It always needs to be perfect. You always need to have perfect skin, perfect hair, perfect body. Well, especially as a woman, sometimes your body changes within the month. 
I got constantly judged by everything and that that was very difficult for me. Yeah. Do you think that the obsession with weight is one of the counterforces to that? It's like the one thing supposedly you, that you can control? Well, I never managed. So I don't know. <laughs> Not for me. You never managed? Or would you also say you never really wanted to? Is there is there a part of you that wished you could have? Or is there a part of you that says my healthy side is the one that actually didn't submit to these draconian sizes that they were wanting for me? For me, definitely my healthy side. When I was 16 or 17, I once got into a period where because of stress, I lost weight and I was so curious, okay, do I lose more weight? Can I lose more? And uh, I would have, I think it was only a week where I would only have dinner And then at one point I was so dizzy during the day that I thought, okay, this isn't healthy. This is not what I want. Later, I basically tried every diet, every workout, everything they advised me to do to reach those sizes, but never in an unhealthy way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What about you, Jane? Um, yeah, definitely. It, it was an eternal struggle because I had the... Fortune of always being tall and slim. So I used to defend, like, no, I don't have to lose weight for this job. And then at some point I did have to. Um, but I never really went that far because there was always a side of me saying, like, this is not the way bodies should look. And more in a, in a eternal struggle with the measurements that, that, that were put on me. Uh, I never had, like, an eating disorder, but uh, I was definitely, like, a lot of my daily thinking was around meals and food and making sure that I could eat healthy, eat the kind of food that I had to eat to maintain my body in social situations and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you get, what I notice is it's not an eating disorder, but distorted eating behavior and distorted body image. I mean, at one point I was wearing size extra small and still thinking I was fat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember this moment of coming back from being in studies and they'd asked me to come to a show in London. So I came and I was looking around coming from this vision of seeing, you know, student bodies, which are maybe not the healthiest, but, and then seeing how thin people were around me. And I was like shocked. I was like, I, people see me like this too. Like I belong to this, this group. And I used to find this normal bodies. You know, if I go back to the, the original question about mm. how do we, say goodbye or how do we change our relationship to modeling i was thinking what happens for you internally that keeps you from leaving this industry and is this something that is more akin to you or do you think that there is something about this profession that makes it hard to leave i think fee already touched upon this thing of how uh, there's always this feeling of Maybe it's a, an internalized idea of it's an easy job and I can win the lottery again and make money in an easy way. So there's always the idea of like, I might get that one job that I've always wanted. I think for me, it's also, I started doing this when I was 15. And uh, for the most part of my life, I've been resisting the identity of a model or to be a model meant to be dumb and to just be pretty. So I always felt really defensive against the label of model. Mm -hmm. You were just presenting it as I'm doing this for a short... On the side, yeah. On the side. Uh -huh. This is something that doesn't define me. But then as I grew older, I think you realize that, you know, what you do does define you to a degree. And, and maybe letting go of that and just becoming like Jane is scary. How do you identify in a positive way with a profession that is at once revered and degraded? If you are a pianist, you can fully identify as a pianist positively, internally as well as externally. You value it, society values it. But when you are a model, Society idealizes you 
and devalues you both at the same time. Puts you on the front of the magazine and at the same time says, pretty and dumb. And therefore, she diminishes the importance of this career for her, which on the one hand, she's deeply attached to in a complicated way. But on the other hand, she keeps saying, I'm just doing this for a while. That isn't all of what I am. I'm not going to do this forever because I have other aspirations that are more serious, more hefty, more grounded. And this whole conversation surrounds the multiple experiences of ambivalence about their profession, leaving it, staying in it, and the other choices that they're making instead of it. How about you? Um, it's, uh, it's like an addictive relationship. You have high highs and low lows. The highs are the travel, the um, living in New York, making easy money, going to these beautiful places makes it so difficult to, to quit. And that was the other thing I was thinking about is after all of the times I called my parents crying after they measured me at the agency and it was still not good enough, they always said, keep on going, keep on going, you can do this, and I would just go for it. So I was thinking maybe that was like giving up. Ah, you don't quit. Yes. Okay. So it's that value of we don't quit. Yes. And what happens if you say, I want a change? They would support that as well. Okay. And would you support it? I want to. Because inside of you, you think somewhere I am quitting? Do you think going to study psychology is choosing something you care less about so that if you're not as good at it, then you won't have to be so crushed? Wait, could you say that one more time? Ah. <laughs> you see, when you have a passion, it could be art, it could be modeling, you know, you are so identified with what you do that if a job doesn't go well, it's not the job that didn't go well. It's something that's missing with you. If you choose something with which you are slightly less identified, it's sometimes the difference between a profession and a vocation. Then if you, things don't go so well, you don't feel like it's such an intimate statement about you. Yeah, but that's so difficult with this work because like, it's the way you look and it's your body. So it's so incredibly personal that if you don't make it, it's, it's my fault. That's right. I haven't been good enough. So the question is, when you go to study psychology or anything else, do you feel like you chose a kind of an easy way out? It's, it's the other story you always had, like, oh, if this doesn't work out, I'll just go back at home and study. Um, but in your mind, if I was truly successful at modeling, I would not be studying psychology. Yes. Right. So this is fraught. And it's not the psychology. It's what you chose to study. The fact that you chose to study in your mind is predicated on things don't go well. I have something to fall back onto. And so this new career becomes my hiding place. Yes. And so I import into my new career also an ambivalence. I'm here, but I'm only really here because I couldn't really do it as well as I wanted to there. So you may leave modeling, but you won't really have joined the new career. This is very difficult to process. It's a very, mm -hmm. I, I, if what I notice, I'm like tensing up. It's getting mm -hmm. quiet inside. It's uh... yes, because what stands out for me is the conflictual relationship to the choice. And what I would really hope is that you not leave one ambivalent relationship with a profession to create another ambivalent relationship with another profession. Behind it somewhere, it is 
I couldn't really be with the person I really wanted to be, so I married the other one. Yeah, it's so, so difficult because I always try to fight against making modeling part of my identity. And then now coming to the point where, you know, it was part, it was realizing it was more part of my identity than I was willing to let it consciously. What would you say, Jen, on this? Is, is public health? Oh, it's my dream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I quit at a high point, I think, in my career to do this. I, I, I want to hug you, Fee, because <laughs> we're really far away. Give her the hug. I'm giving you the it's aura okay. hug. <laughs> <laughs> what I said to her was she got stiff mm. because on some level it landed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that fee. Yeah, that's difficult because psychology, what I do now is I love it so much as well. So then it, it almost feels as if I started doing it for the, for the wrong reason. So what? That doesn't mean that you continue for the same reason. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's just how it started. But part of what we're talking about is what are the high-stakes professions and how we then sometimes choose a lower-stake profession where we don't feel like we are set up with the same kind of anxiety about making it or not making it. Um, when it started from you saying, on some level, we don't quit in my family, and I was encouraged to continue because we have an ethos of not quitting. If I said I want to change, my family would support me. But how do I say I want to change without it not being experienced as I quit? Because if I leave with I quit, then my choice of psychology is predicated on this sense of failure. Which is why Jane started by saying, I left on a high note. She responded exactly to that thing. And then we cut you off so you can continue. Um, but you can talk to her too before yeah, you even I wanted describe to say, your own. I wanted to ask you what then defines success for you in modeling fee because you managed to have a living wage and like you traveled the world, you saw a lot of things. So then, then what is your definition of success in this industry? Well, I remember the, the, first, the first four years of full-time modeling um, they said, oh, you could do Vogue and, you know, oh, you would be perfect for Ralph Lauren and not getting any of those. Mm. What happened to me as well as after those, I think after three and a half years of constantly trying to uh, get the measurements needed and just pushing my own boundaries, I was so tired and unhappy. I just like, uh, I thought that's when I quit. Or that's when I said, okay, I'm going to study because I'm so unhappy. It's funny because we've had such different careers, but like I still recognize a lot of the same feelings. Like I did get what they promised me, but still the structure stays the same. Like you're still fighting for clients all the time. There's no sort of counting on being rebooked by people. And uh, a lot of the insecurities stay the same no matter what level you're at. Um. And like, I also got really unhappy. That's why <laughs> well, I was like, I think it's time to go and do the thing that I've been maybe a bit scared to do in the last year, but actually really want to do, which is study. And what's that experience like for both of you? Because in a way, you had different kinds of adolescence. You, you became adults first. Mm. And now you're going back to being students. Yeah, I felt there were a lot of gaps. Like I'd grown up in in you know in uh, miles in in one way, but then on relationships, for instance, I was I don't feel like I, I I was as mature in my relationships as I was in uh, knowing to do taxes and how to find an apartment or to figure out how a stove worked. Like <laughs> I think I had all of the practical stuff down. Mm-hmm. A lot of the boundary setting a lot of the also exploration i think a little bit and so what you're saying is that in a profession where 
you often have very little boundaries, it creates a challenge in more intimate settings. I think so. Tell me more. Um, we were talking a little bit about nudity and how there's no boundaries with that. And also I think it's the same with pain. You start to almost, I think I started to distance myself from my body because it was often uncomfortable either because I was more naked than I wanted to be or because I was in clothes that were uncomfortable or I was cold or I was too hot. So I think I really started to distance myself from the way I was feeling and that also played over into relationships. So I didn't really for a long time experience a lot of pleasure from my body either. So for a while, I even thought I had something like, um, what do you call it again? Um, where you, when you're not at all in touch with your body and you feel like you're constantly in a sort of cloud um, disassociation. disassociation. Yeah. For me, it felt like that. Like I didn't, I was going through the day and I was, but I felt like I was more often somewhere in a cloud somewhere nearby than, than really in my body and experiencing myself. How does the experience of being touched the whole day, your hair, your clothes, your shoes, your feet, your, um, how does it influence the way you then experience touch outside of modeling? I think, uh, I mean, now if I go to a shoot, so because I've, I've been, I'm in a lovely relationship now where we have a lot of trust and like also through dance, like I've rekind like rekindled this connection with my body. Uh, I love dancing, and I think that's been super therapeutic for me. What a great idea. Oh, it's so good. I always recommend it to models. It's great also for posing, but also to rekindle. Um, but, yeah, now I find it so hard to be on set, to be constantly touched, and to, to be, like, to have people in my space the whole time without negotiating this. And I do feel that for many people in the industry, it's changed also. Like, uh, we had the Me Too movement which overthrew a lot. So I have a lot more, like lately I worked and someone was asking my permission to tuck in a shirt. And I was like, oh, this is so pleasant. I can tell you it's okay. <laughs> and it also felt okay then. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, I think I, I was closing it off so much, the touching on set, that also it closed off the touching when I wasn't on set. I think to distinguish those two is almost impossible, or at least for me at that age it was. What changed it? Dance. <laughs> Definitely dance. It's an amazing thing. Here are these women whose entire career is about their bodies. To then hear them talk about this, how dissociated they are from those very bodies. How much they can't separate the touch from a loved one from the touch on the set and how much dance gave her an autonomous venue to reconnect with her sensuality, with her senses, with movement that is not about performance but about experience. I completely recognized being cut off from the body. But what changed the most recent one was last night uh, where I was looking at my pregnant body and I loved it so much and I felt so pretty, even though my belly was big and, you know, I gained a bit of weight, but I just felt so beautiful. I was like, wow, this is, this is, this is womanhood. Mm. Um, so if you allow me a little grammatic editing, mm -hmm. it's not, I felt so beautiful, even though. I was pregnant. Is that that's how I should say it? No, that's how you said it. It's like despite my being pregnant, I still found myself really beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> If you change the grammar, you may change the meaning. Yeah. Well, bad habits die hard, huh? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, being pregnant makes me feel very beautiful. Beautiful. Very nice. It's, yeah, with the belly and all of the other, you know, the, the, the bigger boobs, all of the other changes. I don't, yeah, it makes me feel really beautiful and very like a woman.
Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian Software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200 or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR and legal, can stay connected and move together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. You know, there are artists who, let's say they play music Mm -hmm. and for a while played in big concert halls. And then at some point, she, he, the band, they, uh, we're no longer on the top of the charts. So equivalent of you're no longer on the front cover of Vogue. But that doesn't mean they stop playing. There are many, many bands who once used to fill big halls that now do small venues and small clubs. But they continue to play. And yeah. so there's often this conversation. If when it's no longer big, you should stop. Or can you still find tremendous joy in doing small venues and being thankful that you've been able to play for 40 years? Yeah. I like the metaphor. It works for me, but I'm not from the industry. You have to tell me if it carries over. It works for me. I wonder if it works for my agent. (laughs) I mean, no, she's super supportive. But if it works in the sense that how the industry responds to it. Yes. It's worth trying out, I think. And that would be nice because I do, I mean, uh, my body just knows how to be in front of the camera after all this time. Like uh, there's a kind of playfulness and creativity that I do like about being in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. I think also I really appreciate, especially now that I'm more in academia, the short reward span of modeling, you know, in one day you create a product that's then done. I don't think there's many jobs in which you have a one day cycle, which is something I really like. Yeah, I never thought about it in that sense because it was always for me, it was a step down and I would still have these high hopes. Uh, how do you say that? Um, Take it in Netherlands. Yeah, that you the highest standard will have. That you want to keep the highest standards. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, pregnancy brain. <laughs> <laughs> so I still wanted to maintain those highest standards. But thinking about adding it, like, it's like a, if I can... Uh, still do a job once it comes up and also maybe to finally accept that side of me as well that likes to be creative Mm -hmm. and that I can be both I can be a model or someone that is viewed for their looks and then on the other side be someone that's viewed for their thoughts 
So the, the personal memory that was spurred for me, and I, I really didn't think about it until now when we are talking together. I had arrived in New York, late 20s, and I had worked in the theater. And I had studied psychology at the same time. And I kept thinking, it's a choice. It's an either or. And the best thing I found was a therapist who said to me, why do you have to choose? Bring the qualities of one into your life of the other. And she liberated me. My life is bigger than just my profession. And I want in my life a number of things Mm -hmm. You don't have to choose. There are lots of people who do more than one thing. Mm -hmm. Modeling is a part of your identity at this point. It's not this one leaving that identity and going to find another. You grew up with it. You need an agent who accepts it. And I could imagine agents who only want diehards, but I could also imagine agents who like to have a staple of a few people who they can use whenever who they are not nearly as responsible for, you know, who have a life away from them, but enjoy every once in a while to be called in. Is that realistic or am I totally off the chart? I think it's realistic if your salary doesn't depend on it and if it's really just for fun that you want to do it once every so often if something comes up. Mm -hmm. As I listened to Fee, I identified with her desire to start a new profession, but stay connected to her career as a model. But I missed it because it wasn't that she wanted to be able to do both. She actually wanted to be able to separate herself from the darker side of modeling, from the place from which she experiences herself as a casualty of the profession in a constant state of self-evaluation. Shall we talk money? That's a piece we haven't really touched. Oh, I but was going to ask something else. Yeah, Jane, <laughs> go ahead. I, I, I understand this for myself and it feels right, but I do have a lot of difficulty with the industry and how much I feel I should or shouldn't be part of that. It's such an abusive industry for many people. And uh, it's also so close to escorting at times. I've seen a lot of people go really bad in this industry, like eating disorders, you know, mental health issues. And sometimes uh, it then almost becomes for me, like is my personal enjoyment of something bigger than the concerns that I have? Mm-hmm. And I think we're both like Fee and I are trying to work on improving these industries, but like it's a it's a really dark one for many. Like I've had the the racehorse version of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it goes all the way back to to factory workers. Like uh, I've done brands that I now wouldn't really want to model for anymore because of their ethics. Personally, I don't I don't want to re- be responsible for someone having a non living wage for getting poisoned from like coloring on clothes maybe it's too big of a burden to take on for me personally but i do find that uh, something that the industry is a bit frivolous about but models are my niche so that's Mm -hmm. something that i can affect and maybe the other people on set Um, and how much is there a voice among models to change some of these norms well the issue i think is that we're very isolated There are voices every once in a while, but there's little collective voice. It's growing. Social media has helped, but uh, you almost have to pull everyone in one by one. And like, there's not many connectors. Well, sometimes it feels as if the agencies are holding the girls that want to reach out to the younger girls to help them, that they don't like it when the girls talk amongst each other or exchange information because that could weaken their position. Mm. So if they stay in control and control the message that the younger models get from them, it's safer for them. <laughs> I see you smiling, Jane. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about something else, which is sort of unrelated, but also related. I remember coming back to New York after I'd studied and I was seeing new agencies because I wanted to leave my old one. And there was this one agent who I was being interviewed by a big agency and they were like, 
why do all these models leave and then think they can come back? I was like, you know, I was 21 and I was being put away by this guy of like 65. And he was just like, how dare you even think that there would still be an industry left for you to come back to? I was like, uh, I think I actually said that I felt that I was now more able to pick up on cues they were giving me on set because I'd actually read the books and I knew the movies and I could talk back because mm. I, I had the knowledge to be an adult on set also and that I could put more of myself into it because I understood myself better. But uh, I don't think that really landed because they, they never asked me back. <laughs> it's not an industry where you're really allowed to make any mistakes. It's also an industry where you are meant to elicit the desires of others while you have to inhabit the restrictions in you. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and that's, and that's the model you grew up with. How does this influence, at this moment, the way you learn to express your desires? Because we started to talk with Jane before about touch, but I'm thinking even more broadly. How do you deal with things that are not part of the code of discipline of what is good and not good for you, food being one of them, sex being another one, staying up late. How do you give yourself permission? How do you let yourself be loved by a boyfriend that isn't looking at you on a magazine page? It's funny because I was thinking about that, actually, that we have uh, two types that kind of come into the industry very stark, but the ones that uh, hyper-control themselves, which I think Fee was, but I too like I wouldn't go out late and I wouldn't go out partying and then you have the ones that just go and they go to all the parties and they sound late they still go to work and it's all fine <laughs> but for me that was never the way I managed it mm-hmm. um, I think I'm still quite controlled yeah it's so funny because you're answering me about boundaries and I'm <laughs> asking you about permissions <laughs> oh, <that's funny. laughs> I mean I understand that there are two uh, ways uh, that some m- many models will behave vis-a-vis control and restriction. Yeah. But I'm asking you how you allow yourself to let go, how you give permission to yourself, how you let yourself be touched is one, but also how you let yourself be loved, how you let yourself experience pleasure, um, especially given that so much of what you do is to create pleasure for those who look at you. I think I'm like a 10% good at it. <laughs> I would definitely say go dancing. Yes. <laughs> you know, preferably not in front of a mirror. That's how I learned to pose. <laughs> I would listen, I would, you know, with a big iPod back mm-hmm. in the days, I would just put it on, put music on, and then dance in front of the mirror. So I could see my the way my body would move. Yes. So I could see how I look. But the more I looked at how I looked and the more I imagined that how other people want me to look and look at my look, etc., the whole thing becomes so externalized that I have very little idea of what I'm feeling on the inside. Yes. What happens when I just when I give myself over to my own pleasure, to my own mounting sensation without without the eyes? Mm-hmm. I have that when I eat really good food. Okay. And can you eat really good food without all the critique and the evaluation afterwards? Yes. Good. Yeah, food is not an issue anymore. Wonderful. Yeah. Good food and good wine. Mm-hmm. Do you understand? I'm talking about play. Play is unselfconscious. If you're measuring, watching, controlling, evaluating, you're not playing. Yeah. You're practicing a discipline of some sort, but it's not about play and pleasure. I want more of that. (laughs) Yes, because I think that you will be able to keep modeling going if it becomes that source of pleasure as as well. I don't have to leave it to change my relationship to it. What I enjoy is the movement. There's something very creative about it, you know, and artful and, um, and powerful. And I'm sure the money is a piece of it as well. It does give, it gives you freedom. So much freedom. It gives you freedom. Yeah. It's so sad that it's still the only industry where women are paid more than men combat, together with escorting <laughs> or <laughs> sex working. <laughs> but yeah, I, I definitely appreciate the freedom that it's given me in my life. What have we not touched? 
I think that part. Money. Freedom. Freedom. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think I have a weird relationship with money, which worries me sometimes. Because I, when I was 17, I think I started making more money than my parents, who were both doctors. For me, the abstraction of money in this industry is a really interesting one. Because they call numbers out to you and they're of such a degree that you can't really fathom the touchableness of it. Like at 16, I was making so much more money than my friends who were doing, you know, like a, a little side job somewhere in a cafe. Uh, and I was lucky that I still have it because I also saw many, many around me respond to it with a, oh, this is going to be forever and I'll just spend it. I've seen so much money spent and wasted. Uh, it's given me freedom to make choices now, which is really nice. But I still am worried that it will run out and I actually don't know how to manage it properly sometimes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's an interesting dilemma also that in a job that's a one day where you can make money for months, the regular job where you go and you work every day and get a little bit for the end of the month is uh, a very different reality. Yeah, but it makes more sense because <laughs> we wouldn't get paid per job. You would get paid months and months later and it would be a bulk sum of all these things combined and deducted and added and flights would be gone and models apartment. So it's, so intransparent that I, I never knew what was mine, what was the agency's. So it, it never felt real. And this is so weird. Yeah, gonna... Go ahead, Fee. It's interesting. I always ask, like, what's my fee for the day? And I had bookers email me back saying, oh, yeah, you're always so funny. You always ask for your day rate. I was like, why is that funny? That should be a standard thing in your email when you send me the booking confirmation. This is the money you make. But also that you're put in the position of having to ask. Yeah, then being seen as difficult because I asked, like, what's my rate? Yeah. And I think also the sometimes the reward of what you do against how much you work for it is so weird. So there'll be a super tough day and you get paid nothing. And there's a super easy day and it's... Uh, really well rewarded it just always seemed um almost like a monopoly money you know because it couldn't be real because i didn't put the effort in that was rewarded with such amounts sometimes so i always found that one really strange as well um is there anything we didn't touch that was important to you no not that i can think of for me what about you fee Because I think the thing that I said to you about psychology, where you basically froze on me, if you think that you chose a profession because you feel like you didn't really make it in the other one, and this is a fallback, on some level you will be left with, I did this because I couldn't really do the other thing. Versus, I did the other thing, and it didn't fully take me to the places where I had been promised as a teenage girl, you know, they promised me I would be the next, you know, <laughs> star of Ralph Lauren and all of this stuff. It's like Cinderella stories, they told me. And as I matured, I realized that may not happen, but there's a lot of other things in there that I find really very captivating. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm going to create actually a life that's a patchwork of a number of different things. Yeah, for me, it's the adding. Because I came into this conversation thinking, okay, there's this pain I still feel surrounding modeling and this negative view I have of it. And I feel lighter and as if I can look back upon it with learning opportunities rather than pain about not having been able to make it and not view it as quitting, but as adding something else after my model days. Now I feel like the author instead of the victim. Good. What about you, Jane? Um, I'm still thinking a lot about the financial part. <laughs> um, it's partly about uh, taking ownership of what I've done, I think. It's partly what you said, like a reward for my abilities at that time, apparently. <laughs> But also, I like the idea of playing for smaller venues that I once frequented. It's a nice feeling. Um, and it's something that I think 
I can try to play it at my terms now. And if the industry doesn't want that, that's also okay for me. But if there's the occasional like comeback show, that would be quite fun. Um, so I think you have your feet on the ground, both of you, very much. But it's a tough landing. <laughs> voilà. Thank you all. When I listen to them describe their life as models, I hear the similar story that embraces the same elements, be you a child actor or a musician or a child athlete. All these youngsters grow up within the field. Their entire stages of development are merged with the profession. And when they decide to leave it, the struggle becomes, how can I leave but still take parts of me with me? Esther Perel is a therapist, best-selling author, speaker, and host of the podcasts, Where Should We Begin? and Housework. To apply with a colleague or partner to do a session for the podcast, or to follow along with each episode's show notes, go to housework.estherperel.com. Housework is produced by Magnificent Noise for Gimlet and Esther Perel Productions. Our production staff includes Eric Newsom, Eva Walchover, Huatay Gatana and Kristen Muller. Original music and additional production by Paul Schneider. And the executive producers of How's Work are Esther Perel and Jesse Baker. We would also like to thank Lydia Polgreen, Colin Campbell, Courtney Hamilton, Nick Oxenhorn, Sarah Kramer, Jack Saul, and the entire Esther Perel Global Media team. Support for this show comes from HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Doing business has never felt harder. But you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. High-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause.